The subject of the talk tonight is the five aggregates are not self. So I'm going to be talking about two aspects. One is the formula or the model of the five aggregates used to describe our human experience. I'll introduce it and explain it somewhat. And the second is how it relates to this teaching on not self, which is one of the central teachings and one of the most powerful teachings that the Buddha offered, unique uh, in his time. This teaching on not self in Pali is called anatta and it's often paired with impermanence and unsatisfactoriness as the three characteristics of all existent things, summed up as anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So this is one of the central pointings in the Buddha's teachings and a place where as we come to understand it, we can experience a great degree of freedom, even short of enlightenment. I think this is one of the most liberating insights short of the enlightenment understanding. But it's also one of the hardest to understand. So don't worry if it doesn't all make sense tonight. I just want to introduce some of the concepts and it's a theme that we need to hang out with over years of Dharma practice and meditation. It can't be understood purely on a conceptual or intellectual level. The understanding of it relies on meditative insight, which relies on stilling of the mind and a strong degree of presence and concentration, which you all are developing in this long retreat. But it needs this combination of uh, inquiry and reflection, which are rational activities, and then the meditative balance and stability that can start to see the truth of what the Buddha was pointing to. So this is something we investigate over some time and it deepens in understanding over time. And so if these concepts are new to you, don't try to think it too hard tonight, but sort of let the general approach sort of sink in and it will take time to uh, integrate. Also notice if there's any resistance to hearing it because you may have a little bit of attachment to the self right? We all might have a little bit of that. So this is undermining one of the central building blocks of our psychology. So notice if there's a little unease with that, that's okay. So very interestingly, the Buddha said that the sense of self that we have, which is revealed all the time through words like I, me, mine, are the sense of self is not intrinsic to the experience of being human, but it is something that is generated out of our beliefs and views. So an interesting question, again, to explore through the talk is, what is our experience when the sense of self is being generated? What does that feel like? And what is the experience that we have when the sense of self isn't being generated? Because the Buddha said these are very different human experiences. Child psychologists say that when an infant comes into the world, it has a very big sense of the world, or you could say self. The division between self and the world is not so strong. So the infant is sort of experiencing things through this oceanic sense of connectedness. And then as we grow up, 
You know, even in childhood years and certainly by teens and early adulthood, that oceanic sense has dwindled down and the sense of self has become quite narrow. So this restriction in our sense of what's happening brings suffering with it, brings inevitable suffering. As we crystallize out of this whole field of experience, we crystallize a sense of what we are and what we're not, that leads to a duality with the world. Creating self also creates other. Once we create a self and differentiate it from what we call other, then uh, we become separated and we become isolated. That separation is one of the deep sources of our unhappiness when we believe, uh, when we believe it thoroughly. And it also leads, this crystallization into self, leads to a deep-seated anxiety, sometimes a strong fear, because of the imminence of death. We see this self that we have cherished and been concerned about and protected and fed and defended coming to an end at some future date. And as long as we believe in the reality of that self, death is going to be a fearful experience in one way or another. So one possible uh, development and freedom in the understanding of not self is coming uh, much, becoming much more comfortable with the possibility of death and removing some of the fear that we normally carry. The self tends to have a lot of concerns and when we dwell on those concerns, we become more separated, more isolated, and uh, in general, more fretful, more worried. So this, this strong belief in the self leads us into different kinds of suffering and provides, I'd say, the root of our basic fearfulness in approaching life. There's a wonderful Indian teacher named Nisargadatta Maharaj, whose teachings were collected in a book called I Am That, which I highly recommend um, to you. He was a Vedanta teacher. He died in the 1990s, I think. He taught in Bombay. And uh, he had this comment, and in this comment, yoga is just a generic term for spiritual discipline. He taught in the Vedanta tradition, but in his view, Buddhism would be considered one of the yogas. So Maharaj said, all yogas have only one aim, that is to save you from the calamity of separate existence. Well, this is where we find ourselves now. We are all embroiled in the calamity of separate existence. And the teachings of the Buddha and the possibility of liberation show us the way out of that calamity of a belief in a separate existence. So when we open to what is beyond self, we find ourselves opening to a way of being that's much wider, broader, more inclusive, open, uh, kind, generous, thoughtful, and loving. This is the promise of opening up the restricted sense of self that uh, we have built ourselves into, something not intrinsic to our human nature. So for most of us, this sense of self is the center that everything revolves around. You can just notice how often the terms I, me, my, and mine come into your thinking. 
Even on retreat, when we're not relating a lot, these make up the content of our uh, drifting thoughts a lot of the time. So the self becomes the focus of our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our decisions, our emotions, values, directions, purpose. It's like the North Star that everything else revolves around in our world as we're not seeing through it. It seems, to use a phrase, self-evident. But have you ever found it? This is quite curious, isn't it? It seems like the most obvious fact of our existence. Have you ever located it? William James, the philosopher, said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. That was good. That's a good start. Most of us can't locate it anywhere. The Dalai Lama said that when you think something is real but you can't find it, that's a sign of delusion. So this belief in self is one of the most fundamental delusions that we have. And in the text, it's compared to walking down a path in the woods and seeing uh, something brown coiled up and believing it's a snake. And then one jumps back in alarm in the belief that it's a snake. But as you get closer and you look at it more precisely, you see it's just a coil of rope. So the understanding about self is like that. When we're burdened with the actual belief that the self is something real, we live with this fear and anxiety, separation and isolation. When we examine it more closely and those beliefs go out, we can relax much more into the flow of life as a process of nature. When our perception is refined and corrected, we see that there's just the process of nature going on. So we can look at our um, language to see some of the confusion we have around this sense of I. We've grown up as children in this culture and the words get tossed around a lot, I, me, mine, but without real clarity about what they're pointing to. So as children, we grow up and we've just absorbed the language of the culture and it's led us to believe that there's something real and precise that's being pointed to with these words. So this isn't necessarily the case and I would call this um, confusion the faulty logic of I. Things aren't the way necessarily that it seems. So let me ask some questions and maybe this will draw some of this out. Suppose I were to ask how old you are. And this is a really simple one to answer. So I'd say I'm 68. And in saying I'm 68, which doesn't strike an odd bell, you know, for any of us, the question is, what is 68? Are my thoughts 68? Is my mood 68? Is my hair 68? No, generally the body is 68, right? It came out of the womb 68 years ago. So here we're equating I with the body. We're basically saying I'm 68, meaning the body's 68. So we're saying I am the body. Okay, now let me ask you, what color are your eyes? So I'd say my eyes are brown. Now the eyes are not being equated with the, bo- with the eye. 
But I is being equated with the owner of the eyes. They're my eyes. That implies that the eye is something that stands apart from the body and possesses it. So which are you really? Are you the body or are you the owner of the body? Can you be both? Does that really make sense? How many selves are you? And we can do the same thing with emotions. Sometimes we say, I'm happy, I'm sad. And so here we're equating the I with the emotion. I am happy. Or at other times, we talk about my joys and sorrows. And so there we become the owner of the emotion. So are you the emotion? Or are you the owner of it? Again, can you be both? Or here's another one. This is what I felt for years to be most essentially who I am. I felt there was a little observer that was inside the head. It was behind the eyes and between the ears and it was looking out on everything that was happening and it was the thing that was experiencing sights and hearing sounds and thinking thoughts and making choices and that was the real me. Let's call this one the observer in the center of everything, experiencing everything. Ever found that one? How many of you have done uh, Goenka-style body scans as part of your practice? Okay, quite a few. Have you spent quite a lot of time investigating the sensations and the experience in the head? Ever find a little person in there? That's what it feels like. And it kind of feels like, oh, that's the essence of Guy is that little being that's inside there looking out and experiencing everything. I never found one. So that's the fifth way we think about I, and there's another I'll I'll come to in a bit. Can all of these be true? Can all of these point to something that's actually an existent thing? The Buddha would say no. And he said this quite um, explicitly. He said, in whatever way one conceives of self, the truth is ever other than that. This is a good one to keep in mind. In whatever way we conceive of self, the truth is ever other than that. And I think it's interesting, this verb conceive is very closely related in Pali to the quality of conceit that Bonnie talked about the other night. So conceiving of self and the conceit that she described as mana are closely related. One way to understand mana is the way in which we conceive that we are a self, that we are something particular. So one of my teachers put it even more bluntly. He said, everything you think is wrong. (laughs) That's a great wake up call. Everything you think is wrong especially if it applies to self-view and self-image. It reminded me of something I heard described from talk radio. I don't listen to a lot of talk radio. I think it's a little crazy in this country a lot of the time. But here's an incisive comment from talk radio. The mind, often wrong, seldom in doubt. (laughs) So we need to start questioning these assumptions You know, especially around this concept of self. There's something deluded going on here. And undoing this deception is one of the primary pieces of the work of 
Buddhist meditation. Okay, so how did the Buddha see? If we tune into the way he saw and he described us, we can get a sense of how to approach a more awakened understanding of what's going on here. So I'm just guessing that when you and I look around the hall, what we mostly see are persons. We see a person here, person there, around the hall we see persons. When the Buddha looked at someone, I don't think he primarily saw a person. I think he saw more precisely than that. So in the Vasudhimaga, which is a fifth century text that compiled a lot of the meditation techniques and understandings uh, current at that time in Sri Lanka, it was written by a commentator monk named uh, Buddhaghosa. There's a passage where Buddhaghosa says, and he uses the analogy of a butcher, which I'm not very comfortable with. I'm a longtime vegetarian. I'm very fond of animals and an animal rights supporter. Nonetheless, this is the analogy from the old text, so I'll mention it. He said, if a butcher was carving up the carcass of a cow for meat, the butcher wouldn't be cutting and going cow, cow, cow. He's much more familiar than that with the body. So he would be going rump, tenderloin, sirloin, ribs, because his understanding is more refined. So when the Buddha saw us, I don't think he really saw a person primarily. I think he saw something more fundamental, more detailed. Really in the teachings, he described a person in one of two ways. The first is one that Joseph mentioned, I think a few mornings ago, which is the six sense bases. Remember Joseph said something like there are only ever six things happening. So something along this line, this is from a, a discourse, a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Discourse on Totality. It says, bhikkhus, what is the totality of things? This is kind of a bold statement, isn't it? I don't know many philosophers in the West who have said this. I don't think Freud said this. I don't think Marx said this. I don't think Einstein said this. But here's the Buddha. Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality of things would not be speaking of something they knew about. I like this because A, it's really simple. B, it's really true, isn't it? When we look at our experience, that's all that's there. The sense base and the sense object. This also maps nicely onto our meditation practice. Vipassana practice is concerned with mindfulness of these six objects as they arise and pass at the sense doors. So this is a good field map for meditators. The Buddha used this formula a lot when he talked about cutting through craving because it seems we generate desire for pleasant experience in each of these six modes of the six senses. But there's another format that the Buddha used just as often in his teachings, and that is the model of the five aggregates. It's another way to describe the totality of things, but it divides them up differently. 
And he used this teaching device to cut through wrong view, particularly the wrong view that concerns the belief in self. So that's why we're going to talk about this tonight, the five aggregates, as a way of seeing through the self. When we start to see in the model of the five aggregates, we see people the way the Buddha saw them. And that means we see them without the false overlay of self. And first, of course, we start to see ourself without that false overlay. This sounds quite technical. You know, aggregate is kind of a technical term, and as we get into the five, they're all maybe a little, not all really familiar. But to me, this is not just an idle philosophical conversation. I got very interested in this scheme when one of my older sisters died. Uh, She was 51 at the time. I'm five years old, younger than she is. She'd been ill. She'd had an illness for a while, but she was very functional in her life, and she was still raising uh, children. And she was not anywhere near a life-threatening disease. But one night at home, she came down with something very quickly, um, was fading, consciousness was fading, she suffered cardiac arrest, and the medical technicians could not pull her through. So she basically died that night quite unexpectedly. Um, And one of her sons was in the house and with her at the time. I heard the news the next day. And it hit me very strongly because I'd been talking to her on the phone just a few days before. Uh, She was someone I was close with. We had a very good uh, relationship. And she was somebody I enjoyed a lot. She had a big personality. She had a great sense of humor. She had a big laugh. She liked to have fun. She was passionate in both directions. She could also get upset about things. But when she was in the room, you knew it. And a lot of vitality. And so for that to have gone along for the 46 years that I'd known her and then come to such an abrupt stop was something I I couldn't comprehend. She had been so full and so alive a few days earlier and then she was just gone. So I'm sure most of you have had this experience with the the puzzle, the real mystery of death. How can someone who is so alive all of a sudden just be gone? What has happened? So what I took to investigating as I lived with this, because her, her grief touched me for a while, there were a couple of months I would go into grieving spaces and come out a little bit and then go back into darkness and come out a little bit and I'd be reflecting on the Dharma implications of this. The, the model I used to understand what had happened to her was the five aggregates. It helped me a lot to understand as much as I could of the mystery of her death. And in doing that, it helped me come to a lot greater peace around her dying but also around my dying, because I came to understand kind of how this being has been put together. And I'll say some more about that later in the talk. So the Pali word for the aggregates is kanda. In the Pali, it's a simple word uh, that just means heap or bundle. You could talk about a kanda of of twigs or branches or something like that. Uh, We translate it with the word aggregate because that's the way it's been used for a long time, but that sounds too technical to me. 
Aggregate sounds like road paving material, like what they're going to be doing out on Pleasant Street in hopefully a few days. Uh, Another way you could say it is components. There are five components that make us up. But even that sounds a little technical, so what I like is kinds of stuff. (laughs) There are these five kinds of stuff that make us up. And that's really how I, how I take it. But I'll use the word aggregate because in Buddhism it's become very common. So the five aggregates are material form, feeling tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. This is what makes up a being. So I want to go through each one and talk about how we can find them and feel them in our direct experience. So form, the Pali term is rupa, means all material form. So all the matter that you see in the universe goes into this one aggregate. So our bodies, other bodies, the floor, the trees, the forest, the earth, this is all part of the material form aggregate. So not only that, but the sense objects that come from physical interactions are also part of material form. So sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and sensations are all part of that material form aggregate. So you could say this is the physical world, including the physical sense objects in our experience. So for example, that sound is in the realm of rupa. One of the physical sense objects, that's part of rupa. So the second aggregate is feeling tone. You know this is Vedana. We covered it, I think Carol covered it in the meditation instructions a few days ago. This is the quality that every sense contact has of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And you'll remember that the feeling tone, as Carol described it, is a mental component because the same physical experience doesn't translate for everybody with the same degree of pleasantness or unpleasantness. For example, beets. Now we had beets, I think it was yesterday at lunch. I saw a lot of people helping themselves very happily to the serving of beets. I didn't take any because I don't like beets. And now that my mother isn't around anymore, I don't have to eat them. (laughs) So some people really love the flavor of beets. To me, they taste like dirt and it's not very pleasant. And I don't have to eat them anymore. So the feeling tone is a mental quality that gets projected onto the physical experience. And in that way, as one teacher described, it's kind of like we feel our way into our experience of the thing. So the feeling tone is mental, even though the object is physical. So for instance, with the sound of the bell, Generally, most people here would experience that as a pleasant tone, just in and of itself. But because it marks the end of the sitting, it's really a pleasant tone. So that is generally felt as pleasant, but not everybody might. The third um, aggregate is perception. Again, all the rest are going to be in the mental field because Rupa has taken in the whole physical world. So perception is another feature of mind. And it refers to our ability to recognize objects and place them in a category that we've known previously. So as you look around the room, 
quite automatically, the mind is putting things into categories of recognition. So you will see woman, man, zafu, mat, floor, tree, statue, light, chair, etc. This happens pretty automatically. You don't have to think about it a lot. But you recognize the things that are here because you've seen them before and you've put them in a category and then you remember that. So perception is based on memory, on prior cognition. It's a recognition of something you've known before. And we think it just happens automatically. But in fact, we've learned to perceive. It happens without our thinking about it now, but it might not have happened that way. The neurologist Oliver Sacks tells a story of a patient that he was working with. The man's name was Virgil. Virgil had lost his sight when he was very young, maybe as a young child. But as he uh, grew up, surgeries were developed which allowed his sight to be restored. So in early middle age, Virgil had his sight restored through the operation and Sachs was consulting with the surgeon. So the moment came, Virgil was in the hospital bed and they were just about to peel off the bandages that had covered his eyes so that he could experience seeing again. And everybody thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic. He's going to be so joyful. Wow, I can see again. It's so wonderful. So the surgeon peeled back the bandages from Virgil's eyes. And I'll just describe, I'll read from Sachs what happened. No cry, I can see, burst from Virgil's lips. He seemed to be staring blankly, bewildered, without focusing at the surgeon who stood before him still holding the bandages. Only when the surgeon spoke, saying, well, did a look of recognition cross Virgil's face. Virgil told me later that in this first moment he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up, all meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blue came a voice that said, well, then and only then, he said, did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. Because Virgil had lost his sight so young, he had never been able to wire his brain to process visual information and perceive the objects of sight. Joseph mentioned that really what's happening in sight are just patches of form and color. And you can see this more clearly if you close one eye. If you reduce the visual field to two dimensions, it becomes much clearer that that's all that's there. But we've learned to recognize those patches as different objects. Virgil never had learned that. By the time he was older, those circuits were much harder to wire up. So Virgil did learn with a lot of training to recognize a number of things and perceive a number of things in his world, but there were a number of things he never learned to perceive fluently. And he lived life at a perceptual disadvantage um, after that. So this is the field of perception. And one of the things that's uh, tricky about it is that we don't always perceive accurately. The Buddha described uh, 
the inaccuracies of seeing as distortions, both in perception and in view. And he called these vipalasas. And someone may give a talk on this later, but he said that we tend to see things as permanent, which aren't. We tend to see things as um, offering lasting happiness when they can't. We tend to see things as being a self when they're not. And we see things as, uh, we tend to see things as being beautiful when in fact they're a little dangerous. He said these are distortions of perception that we unlearn through, uh, through meditation. Just as an example of the limitation of perception, you have a sensation in the leg. If you put the word pain on it, that word, that perception can hold you back from going and meeting that sensation really freshly and exploring it without fear. If you explore it without fear, you might find, oh, it's okay to experience. But as soon as we call something pain, we might hold back a little bit. Or we might not see things quite the way that they are if we perceive it and think we've understood it all. For instance, we see this and we normally think because we're familiar with it, we normally think, oh, it's a bell. That's the end of it. But um, could this be a begging bowl for a well-turned-out monk or nun? <laughs> sure, that would work pretty well. Could you see this being turned upside down and being a cute little hat on a statue of appropriate size? Yeah, that might be kind of nice. Could it be a flower pot? It'd be a little expensive for a flower pot, but it would be a very nice flower pot. So we want to be able to look at things as they are without necessarily burdening them with a conceptual overlay. Zen makes quite a lot of this. You may know about this. You know, there are all these koans in Zen. The Zen master will say, what is this? If you say it is a stick, I will hit you. If you say it is not a stick, I will hit you. That's why I ended up in Vipassana. I just thought if I went to Zen, I'd get hit a lot. So I came to the softer school. So there's a kind of funny story about this. In the late 70s, two, two really venerable masters were both in Cambridge at the same time giving teachings. And some of their students knew one another and they found, the students found out the other was in town and thought, well, let's bring these two enlightened masters together and we'll have this wonderful encounter where enlightened mind meets enlightened mind and recognizes it and it's like the empty mirror looking into the empty mirror and you know we'll all get enlightened too. So they brought them together and it was the Tibetan master Kalu Rinpoche and the Korean Zen master Sansanim. So they invited them into the home of one of our friends and offered them tea and put out a platter of fruit for them to eat from, and they were both sipping and talking through translators. And Sansanim thought, okay, I'm gonna check, check this fellow out. So Sansanim picked up an orange from the fruit plate, and he held it out toward Kalu Rinpoche, and he said in his good Zen master voice, what is this? <laughs> and Kalu just sat there doing his beads, you know, saying his mantra and checking off the mala, smiled a little bit, just very peaceful, didn't reply. 
Sansani wanted an answer, so he held it out again. What is this? And Kalu just quietly turned to his translator, and then the translator said to the group, uh, Rinpoche asked, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> so apparently nobody got enlightened that night. But It's a good story about perception. You never quite know how it's going to turn out. So when you hear the sound of the bell, normally you recognize it as the bell ending a sitting. And so you know, oh, now it's time to get up. So that perception happens quite automatically. That's recognition at work. The fourth aggregate is called mental formations. They're sometimes also called volitional formations to emphasize that there is intention involved in these things. I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that tonight, but you recognize intention as such a a central teaching based on uh, Winnie's instruction, Sally's uh, Dharma talk from a couple of nights ago. Intentions are really key to the uh, formation of karma. So the intentional part is an important part in the fourth aggregate, but we won't spend a lot of time on that tonight. Mental formations are basically thoughts, moods, emotions, meditative states of mind. That's essentially what it encompasses. And we've been talking about these in the meditation instructions quite a bit, so I think you're familiar with how to uh, know them and practice, practice with them. So, for instance, when you hear the bell at the end of a sit, you may well think, oh, the sitting's over, a feeling of ease may come, and then the thought, may come, oh, now I could sit forever. You know, like a moment before the bell rings, you can't wait for it to end. And as soon as the bell rings, you go, oh, I could sit forever now. Anyway, these are the emotional or volitional formations that often arise upon hearing the bell ending a sitting. So these are mental formations. In Pali, the term is sankhara. Now, the fifth aggregate is very interesting It's called consciousness, and the Pali term is vijnana. We haven't talked a lot about it in this retreat, but it's a very interesting thing to start to explore in your direct experience. Consciousness means a lot of different things in Western philosophy and psychology, but in Buddhism, the meaning is fairly simple. Consciousness is the faculty of mind that, uh, you could say, reveals sense objects, or holds sense objects, or receives sense objects, or the best word is knows sense objects. So when you hear a sound, you're a conscious being, so the hearing is taking place for you as a sentient experience. If the bell was rung in the forest and there was nobody around, would it make a sound? Depends how you define sound, right? The sound wave would be created, but if there was no being there, to receive it, there would be no conscious experience of hearing. So what we all have when the bell rings is a conscious experience of hearing, and that means the sound is being known by our consciousness. Each of us is receiving that in consciousness. So what consciousness reveals is just the bare data of that mm. Before it knows it's a bell, before it knows it's A-sharp, before it even recognizes it as a sound, consciousness knows that mm, 
and reveals it to us. So consciousness is there in each moment. In fact, consciousness is what has revealed the sound, it's revealed the feeling tone, it's revealed the perception that it's a bell, it's revealed the feeling of ease that's come at the end of a sitting, it's revealed the thought, now I could sit forever. So consciousness is there with each of the other five aggregates too. So consciousness is this basic kind of cognition that's happening all the time as long as we're awake and it's what marks a sentient being. Birds have consciousness, dogs have consciousness, insects have consciousness, and humans have this kind of consciousness. So these are the five aggregates that describe our human experience. Form, feeling tone, perception, formations, and consciousness. Something to explore, we won't do it right now, but for you to explore, is there anything in your experience that's outside this list of five kinds of stuff? Is there anything else going on? It's kind of important that you do that review to convince yourself that everything that's happening is in one of these five categories. But I'll leave you to do that. And I'm just going to say, I think you'll find that it's complete. The Buddha thought it was complete. I think you'll find it's complete. Why is this important? Because in our whole experience, there's only form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. There's nothing else. In particular, there's a kind of important noun that isn't on this list. (laughs) And that is self. There's no I on this list. There's no me, there's no self. There's only form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. That describes the whole thing. So there is no one at the center to whom these are all happening. There's no owner of these kinds of stuff. There's no controller of these kinds of stuff. There are only these kinds of stuff. And in fact, one of those versions of the self that we talked about, remember that the one who's sitting at the center in the head, looking out, seeing sights, hearing sounds, thinking thoughts? That is only an identification with consciousness. That's basically saying, I am the experiencer. I am the knower of all these things. Consciousness is doing the knower, but we identify with that and say, oh, I'm the knower, I'm the observer. But it's just an identification with consciousness. So there are only these five things. And what's the relationship to the human being? Okay, um, probably you, most of you can see the item I'm holding up is just a common pen. It's a ballpoint pen, everybody can recognize that. It's a physical object, it's in the area of rupa. And you're knowing it as a pen is simply a perception. It's a commonly agreed thing. But I can take this pen apart. So as I take it apart, there's a tip, there's a cartridge, there's a spring, and there's a cap. Now I'm holding up these four parts Is this a pen? It's not a pen anymore, is it? 
to make a pen, I have to take these four parts and fit them together in a way that it can be used for writing something. Now that I put it back together, everybody's, oh yeah, now that's a pen. Pen doesn't point to any one thing. The word pen is just a conventional designation that points to an assembly of certain parts put together in a certain way. The word human being doesn't point to any one thing. It only points to a collection of aggregates that have been put together and assembled in a certain way that works. Another way to say it is in the center of all the components of pen, there is no one thing that is a little pen. (laughs) In the center of the collection of all the parts that is each of you, there is no one thing that is the essence of you. It's just an assemblage of parts that put together in this way work, in the way that they work. So to say human being is just a conventional designation. To say Guy or Sally or Winnie is just a conventional designation. When you look closely to what is being pointed at, it's just a collection of parts. This was the part that was so freeing in investigating my sister's death. I had assumed that her personality, which is mostly these mental formations, you know, her sense of humor, her kindness, her irritability, her love for her family, I had assumed her personality and her form were one. That was a mistaken perception. It was almost accidental that that personality and that body had come together. And when I saw that, when I could separate them, I could see how when life ended, the body remained, whatever the personality was, that had gone on. That was not there any longer. But the separation of those two components wasn't so startling anymore. And it let me see how my death was going to happen. You know, what I took as my personality was going to get separated from this body. So all these components that we have assembled here, they're all conditioned. And we need to look in and see that, um, see that conditioned nature and its limitations. So this is uh, from one of the discourses of the Buddha. You probably know his first discourse was the Four Noble Truths. And one of the Uh, people that he delivered it to, a group of five old friends who had practiced with him, got partially enlightened from that first discourse. Then a couple of weeks later, they all practiced together. The Buddha gave his second discourse, and it was called the characteristic of not-self. And when he delivered the second discourse, all five of them became fully enlightened. So this characteristic of not-self is significant. You know, the first five arhats in the world after the Buddha were created from a discourse like this one. <laughs> no, probably a little better than this one. So the Buddha was asking about the five aggregates, and he said, this body, is it permanent or impermanent? And of course, they knew. They said, it's impermanent, venerable sir. And so the Buddha said, what is impermanent? Is it going to give you lasting happiness? Or at some point, is it going to become unsatisfying? 
And I said, at some point it becomes unsatisfying because it changes, venerable sir. So the Buddha said, is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. You might remember this line also from Bonnie's talk the other night because the one on this I am is the pointer to mana, conceiving oneself. In other words, why would you put yourself onto something that is going to change and is not going to give lasting happiness? That's not a good bet. So then the Buddha went through the same questions, a series of questions with feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So at the end, the practitioners had all been led to investigate their body, their feeling tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, and realized that none of them were fit to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So in that, there was a great letting go. And in that great letting go, their minds opened to the unconditioned and they were enlightened on the spot. So this is an important investigation because it turns out self is not just kind of a neutral concept without any association. Self has assumptions embedded in it that constrict us. So there are three or four really important assumptions that we carry about the self that we haven't investigated. One is that it has continuity. So that's why in some way we feel like the same person now as the one who went through high school or the one who went, entered the door two weeks ago to join this retreat. We feel in some way it's the same me through all those different experiences of life. If we didn't feel that sense of continuity, we wouldn't worry about death because death would be happening to somebody else. Wouldn't be happening to me. That's going to be a different person then. That person can deal with it. I don't have to worry about it. But we do worry about death because we assume this continuity of the self over time. A second thing is we think that um, there's just one self. Don't you really? When you ask about where yourself is, how many different ones do you expect to come up with? It's really just one, isn't it? People who really think there are two or three or four, usually we call the medics for them because that's considered not very healthy mentally. So there's just one. And then also we feel the self, our self should be unique. You know, I'm unique in this whole created universe. There's only one like me. You have your own unique self and I have my own unique self. But each of us is very different in that, in that self piece. Okay, so seeing that the aggregates are all impermanent destroys the illusion of continuity. There is no real continuity to a human being. And as we investigate the aggregates, we'll see that. Nagarjuna, who's the preeminent Buddhist philosopher of emptiness, said... If mind and matter were me, I would come and go like them. So if you really think you are these aggregates, 
then you need to feel yourself arising and passing moment after moment. But we don't because we assume that the I is, is ongoing. You have to think that the self is unitary. So how can you be both the liver and compassion? How can you be the toenail and loving kindness? Those are really different pieces. How can that be one self? It doesn't make sense. And you have to assume that you're unique. Is your love really different from my love? Is your anger really different from your friend's anger? And what about consciousness? But we'll get to that in a minute. So first of all, think about this body. We want to explore the aggregates and their conditioned nature. So first we'll think about this body and how it came to be this way. So as Bonnie said in her talk the other night, you know, we can have definite mana about our appearance. We can be, uh, have pride about our appearance or we can be embarrassed about our appearance. But when you think of it, did you have anything to do with your appearance? Overall, okay, you know, diet, exercise, health care, how you cut your hair, you know, that makes a little bit of impact. But did you have anything to do with your overall appearance, how tall you are? or how short, whether you're dark or fair, whether your shoulders are broad or narrow. Did you have a say in any of that? You choose by volition any of that? Well, let's review how this thing got here. So your father's sperm met your mother's egg. They joined. The cells multiplied and specialized within the womb. Nine months later, something popped out into the world. It got milk and water and food and air. It grew, 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 grew. And then it's here today. Did you have a choice in any of that? So why do we take so much responsibility for it? It's just a physical process. The whole thing was a physical process from the moment of conception until now. Our choice had nothing to do with the overall way we came out. And yet we take a lot of pride or embarrassment around it. It's just part of physical nature. The body is part of physical nature and it will follow the laws of physical nature. One of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, said it like this. This body came out of nature. It's part of nature. It never departed from nature and it belongs to nature. Give it back to nature. That will be a great relief for you. You can also reflect on that with emotions. And we've talked about how our emotions are part of the whole human package. For everyone who's not highly enlightened, we have the same range of emotions. We all feel at times the same happiness or sadness or joy or sadness or loneliness or anger, whatever. We all have that because it's all part of human nature. And then consciousness, the fifth aggregate, that's just nature also. We all have this ability to know sense objects and that's really all it is. All humans have this same 
type of knowing of the objects of the senses. So sometimes we can identify with it, like the observer, but we can reflect on that and realize there's not really a little person behind that. But then there's another way in Dharma language we might identify with consciousness. And that is to say something like, okay, I get it, I'm not the body, I'm not the emotions, I'm not the thoughts. What I really am, my fundamental identity, is this vast awareness that it's all happening in. Because this vast awareness just always seems to be here. It includes all the comings and goings. But that's really me. The vast, oh, that's what I am. What's wrong with this one is A, the I is unnecessary. The vast awareness may be there, but there's no need to claim it. It's just part of nature. And the vast awareness is no different between me and you. So there's nothing unique or self-like about it. So that one doesn't stand up either. So there's no place within the aggregates that the sense of self really stands up under investigation. We examine each one, it's not found anywhere. So how does it come about? Because we keep having this sense. Ananda was a cousin of the Buddhas who became the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. He's one of the most sympathetic characters in the Pali Canon. He was a lovable, humble, devoted practitioner. And when he was newly ordained, he relates this story. He had just ordained and a monk came up to him and was giving him some advice. And and this is the wisdom that he transmitted to Ananda. The other monk said, Ananda, it is by clinging that the notion I am occurs, not without clinging. And by clinging to what does I am arise? By clinging to form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. You can check this out in your meditation. Ask yourself, does the I ever arise on its own? Does it ever just go, I? (laughs) Or does the I only arise in relation to other sense experience? Okay, there's a pain in the knee. All of a sudden we think, I have a pain in my knee. We could just say unpleasant sensation. But if we get a little worried and out of that worry we grasp the pain, look how soon the phrase will come, I have a pain in my knee. The I and my are unnecessary, but the worry gives them uh, uh, potency. It gives them a charge. So take a look when the, the sense of I arises and see if it hasn't come out of clinging on to some kind of sense experience. So this is what the Buddha referred to as eye-making and mind-making. The Pali words are ahankara and mamankara. We construct the sense of I over and over by grabbing a hold of experience at one of the five aggregates, or you could say one of the six senses. If we don't grab a hold, no I arises. No sense of self arises. So start to pay attention to this in your meditation. When is there the fixation and grabbing a hold of a sense experience with the attendant feeling of I and my? And then when is it happening in your meditation you're not grabbing a hold 
of anything. And what's that like? What is it like when you're grabbing a hold and self is being born? And what's it like when there's just a spacious, open, non-grasping attention and the self isn't being formed? What do those two feel like? Explore that, investigate, and tell me where you'd rather meditate from. I think you'll find the experience without I to be much more easeful, peaceful, open, spacious, balanced, equanimous. Start to investigate and see what it feels like. The seeing into not-self is not a cold, intellectual, academic exercise. It is to remove the excessive self-concern that we generate when we feel the tight constriction of self. And when we remove that excessive self-concern, then the heart can open easily into love and compassion. This is why we investigate self, to discover that open space where love and compassion can flow very easily. So these two, the absence of self, sometimes described as the emptiness of self, and the movement into love and compassion, they support one another. They need one another. One naturally flows into the other. And that's how we understand this quote from, again, Nisargadatta Maharaj that I'll end with. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between these two poles, my life flows. So let loving kindness carry you into a deep connection with all of life. And let Vipassana carry you into the wisdom of not being anything particular at all. So let's just sit for a minute. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.